Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As you may be aware, Wittenberg to Westphalia is now a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which brings together interesting podcasts into a marketplace of the mind. In this, the month of July, we are celebrating the Renaissance English History Podcast by Heather Tesco. I have just started listening to Heather's podcast, and it is awesome, particularly since I will not be covering the social and cultural aspects of the English Renaissance in a whole lot of detail, uh, and I'm going to instead be focusing on the political and religious aspects. Listeners of this show will be doing themselves a favor by checking out the Renaissance English History podcast at englandcast.com. It will really be filling a hole in our coverage of that period. So go check it out. And thanks. The dregs of the Carolinian race no longer exhibited any symptoms of virtue or power, and the ridiculous epithets of the bold, the stammerer, the fat, and the simple distinguished the tame and uniform features of a crowd of kings alike deserving of oblivion. By the failure of the collateral branches, the whole inheritance devolved to Charles the Fat, the last emperor of his family. His insanity authorised the desertion of Germany, Italy and France. The governors, the bishops and the lords usurped the fragments of the falling empire. Quote from Edward Gibbon, History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs And this is episode 20, Charles the Who? In the last few episodes, we have followed the Gadeshi from obscure origins in eastern Francia to becoming one of the most important and infamous ducal families of central Italy. Last time, we saw Guy II of Spolento, known as the Rage, invade the Papal States, defy the Empire, and ally with Saracen pirates to fight off the Imperial Army. In the process, he inadvertently caused another massive epidemic to ravage Italy in which he died, leaving Splento to his uncle, Guy III, who rapidly patched things up with the Empire and the Papacy. We also saw a close relationship developing between Berengar of Friuli, Charles the Fat's main deputy in Italy, and Arnulf of Carinthia, Charles the Fat's nephew, and the unofficial leader of the Eastern Franks. Today we pick up where we left off last week, but also where we left off at the end of episode 13. 
After years of watching Charles' pretensions of grandeur and ineffectual rule, Arnulf kicked Charles out of power and sent him to a monastery, where the already ill Charles died. What followed is a mystery that hides in plain sight. This story is known, but many historians skim over this entire period, saying that Charlemagne's empire broke up quickly after his death. Never mind that Charles the Fat's death was 74 years after Charlemagne's. Other historians who give a more detailed history of these events comment on it briefly and then move on to an epilogue, or to whatever's next. But to me, these events contain such a head-scratcher that I'm going to be devoting two episodes to this event. The first today, on the event itself, and the second on the role that the Gadeshi played in these events and the aftermath. The question that hides in plain sight is, well, what happened? Why did the Empire fall apart after Charles the Fat's abdication? For today, I think the first thing I need to do is run you through a high-level summary of the events that transpired, then discuss the sources and historiography, and then end today's episode with maybe some commentary from me. I apologize if this isn't as awesome as leading an army of plague-ridden Saracens into northern Italy, but trust me, there's going to be a pretty spectacular payoff next episode. Okay, so the events. I'm giving a very high-level summary to try and avoid spoilers for the next episode, but I think it should be okay. So very briefly, in November 887, Charles the Fat abdicated. In early 888, Arnulf was crowned king of Germany, three people were crowned king in western Francia, and two in Italy. Shortly thereafter, the Burgundians and Provençals effectively declared independence. Shortly thereafter, the Magyars arrived. Hilarity ensued. So the big question, how or why did this happen? And that's not a little thing. We're basically asking, what caused the breakup of the Carolingian Empire. Historians have offered a few narratives in the past, but substantive discussions are undermined by the rapid pace of events, the poor documentation, and the poor quality of timekeeping in the early Middle Ages. You heard me, dear listener, timekeeping. Intrigued? Well, come, join me in the early Middle Ages, the closest thing a serious historian has to hell on this side of the great beyond. So first, let's talk about sources. There's only a few primary sources, and they are chronicles, not real histories. The difference is that chronicles are more like bullet-pointed timelines than narrative histories. Uh, If you want a full discussion of the pluses and minuses of this stuff, go check out the British History Podcast, actually, where he gets into some real serious historiography. But basically, there's nothing tying events together, and the monks who kept them were as likely to get distracted by odd birds as they were to mention big events. To a certain extent, we are lucky, as we actually have two for this period that are somewhat reliable uh, and cover the same events. This is the Chronicle of Fulda and the Annals of Saint-Bertin, neither of which I can find in English at an affordable price, so I'm doing this from snippets of Google Books, but I've made my peace, dear listener. I've made my peace. Anyway, between these chronicles, a few other chronicles exist that aren't as high quality, but with the couple of chronicles they have, uh, historians have been able to cross-reference one off the other and build sort of a skeleton of events. But there's a problem. It's the time thing. You see, everyone in Western Europe was still using the old Julian calendar, which isn't that big a deal. A lot of people still do use the Julian calendar, and it's well understood and you can do conversions. It's kind of a pain. It's not the best calendar, but you can make it work. But with how localized society had become in the early Middle Ages, and with the drop-off of learning, despite the Carolingian Renaissance, the quality of timekeeping could be lacking in these monasteries. 
Amongst the problems, the Julian calendar needed more adjustment to keep on time with the seasons and everything than the Gregorian system that would eventually replace it. And if, you know, Bill's monastery on Windy Rock didn't get the leap day memo on a given year, then it might be a day off for a really long time. And then the Julian calendar was prone to drift anyway, uh, even if the time was properly kept, and sometimes people just made mistakes out there on Windy Rock, and so no one got around to noticing for years because communications were lacking. So the end result was that each monastery might have a different idea of what day it was. And historians have found that in the early Middle Ages, it could be off by as much as two weeks in either direction. This is super important if you're trying to build a narrative off of a bullet-pointed timeline during a period in history where things are happening at a rapid pace. Take, for example, the crowning of Arnulf and Odo, king of France. The chroniclers tell us that both crownings happened in February 888, three months or so after the abdication of Charles the Fat at the very end of November 887. Plenty of time for messengers to go back and forth between Western and Eastern Francia and negotiate out the events. But then apply the two-week buffer. Potentially, the abdication happened as late as the end of December 887, and the coronation as early as January 888. Now you could be talking about events that are only separated by a week or two, if that. Potentially not enough time for messengers to go between the actors involved on the crumbling Roman infrastructure. So this could have a real impact on how you can realistically construct your narrative. The big picture that emerges is just a big, giant question mark. A huge shrug. This has not kept historians from debating events, and indeed devoting careers to untangling these issues. But you should know, dear dear listener, that everything from basically here forward is as much speculation as fact. That said, let's discuss what they've come up with. The classic view of this period is captured by the near-contemporary Regino of Prum, who was writing only a few decades later, which gives him some claim to be able to talk for the people who were alive at the time. Prum said that the different regions had each chosen a kinglet from within their own bowels. In other words, this is viewed traditionally as the final shameful death of the empire, brought about by the lack of virtue of its rulers. This view would remain popular right through the Victorian period in which Sir Edward Gibbon wrote our opening quote. Podcast footnote. Incidentally, this quote was read by Gary Stevens of the History in the Bible podcast. I really do recommend you check out his show. It is a really fascinating survey of what happens when you use modern methods of documentary criticism, which is the basis of history, uh, and you apply it to the Bible instead of just taking the Bible at face value, which is what they did up until the 70s. So, uh, I really would recommend you check it out. While I have you here, I should just admit that the words of Regino of Prum, which I quoted earlier, the stuff about raising up kinglets from within each kingdom's bowels, are unfortunately a paraphrase. There seem to be no English translations available, and yet every medievalist and his mother covering this period somehow quotes him. So I have to as well, or I will be haunted by the ghast of Gibbon. If it makes you feel better, I actually did look up a Latin version, and it looks right, although Prum was writing in medieval church Latin, and I don't remember too much from high school, but I tried. End podcast footnote. A more contemporary view, espoused by, amongst others, Norman F. Cantor, is that the dissolution of the empire, whatever the specific political events, was the end result of an inevitable process, brought about by the numerous very different peoples brought together under the empire. As early as the Oath of Strasbourg in 842, it was clear that the different parts of the empire were speaking different languages, and clearly this multi-ethnic empire could not last. 
Many modern historians continue to repeat this view, while adding on other aspects of the internal dissolution of the empire. Personally, I find the idea that ethnically and linguistically diverse people cannot be politically united mm -hmm. to be a preposterous notion on its face. Numerous empires throughout history have brought together racially and linguistically diverse groups. That is, you know, what an empire do. The other issues afflicting the empire, on the other hand, are much more plausible, and these have been brought into this sort of generalized narrative to the point that you can kind of get rid of the linguistic diversity thing and keep the other stuff if you want to, which I do. The rise of oath loyalty to individuals rather than political entities the use of land as a replacement for salaries, the rise of land heritability by public officials, in short, the decline of public institutions and their replacement by private ones, by feudal ones, and private ownership of the tools of state, all these issues set the stage for the fall of the Carolingian Empire, and I hope that I've done a good job of at least touching on these issues as I've gone along. As a counterpoint, we should add the numerous things about the empire that worked in its favor, the Carolingian dynasty, at least as an abstraction, was popular amongst the people that mattered, namely the aristocracy and the church. Uh, if we can call them the aristocracy at this point, um, I think there is a solid definition for that somewhere, which I'll probably be talking about later. But they were largely part of the Carolingian clan, and were tied into the empire by numerous fiscal and personal ties. Most had a highly dispersed landholding around the empire that should have tied their loyalty to the stability of the empire. But this dispersion was gradually eroded over time. Reinforcing this issue was the very powerful force of religious conviction. The church was important at this point, and the church was super, super into the Carolingians. Many of them were Carolingians, so that never hurts. Beyond loyalty ties, the first few emperors had also done much to make the empire more efficient and expand its power, and helped to usher in the so-called Carolingian Renaissance, which created something of a uniform culture that functioned as the church schools around the empire began training clergymen who could double as bureaucrats and could all understand each other and speak Latin and had similar views on Catholicism and all that fun stuff. But these things failed to really tie the empire together. The expanded powers of the empire were usually administered by local nobles who had the ability to see them enforced. But even if they were assigned to keep the other nobles from abusing their power, imperial officials often had more in common with the local nobles than the abstract laws that they were often too illiterate to understand, let alone enforce. As these local officials turned into local strongmen, it had the effect of, if not reducing, then failing to encourage trade. Indeed, economic activity beyond farming seemed to be beyond the conception of either the Carolingian government or the church officials that were supposed to be their educators. We know economic activity was happening, we have some archaeological evidence, and we think it expanded, at least during Charlemagne's lifetime. But as the Carolingian nobility turned Europe into a patchwork of borders between their petty lordships, the Vikings and Saracens began abusing such trade links as existed to spy out and attack the empire, which can't have been good for trade. And these raids form the final element in our picture of a dying empire. As later theorists would observe, the primary function of the state was security, and even in the Middle Ages this was something in the intellectual world of most. One or two raids will generally not unmake an empire, but the Vikings and Saracens raided far and wide, and this can't have gone unnoticed, even by the peasantry. But more concretely, the Vikings and the Saracens fundamentally reshaped the way people in Europe were living their lives. In the north, people clustered around castles and fortified manor houses for protection. In the south, people abandoned fertile valley land and built fortified villages in the mountains. 
food production declined, and society was massively unsettled. Beyond undoing ties of loyalty, these events forced the peasantry to physically move closer to their lord's protection and control, putting the remains of the medieval economy into the nobility's hands. To access resources such as food that formed the basis of the economy, the empire and its successors would actually have to physically go through the nobility. Ultimately, the Carolingians were a transitional political entity. They tried to recreate the Roman Empire using a new feudal economic footing, and ultimately only succeeded in entrenching the new feudal system in so deeply that it could not be uprooted. But then it was important that they did so. Most of the core areas of modern Europe trace their political existence to a Carolingian political entity, even areas outside of the borders of the empire. This helped lay down a common culture in Europe, from which the feudal entities of the Middle Ages would spring, each with a unique culture, but often with as many similarities as differences. In terms of the specific political events that followed Charles the Fat's death, I think these wider social forces are important to keep in mind, but they also don't mean that the empire had to fall. The political process and actors had a role to play as well. And the political situation of the empire was basically as bad as the social and economic situation. Remember that by the time Charles reunited the empire, the core Carolingian clan had already been struggling to hold power for two generations. In the previous generation, it had engaged in either a really unfortunate set of accidents or a large-scale bloodletting of its younger members. In this political context, and in the context all I discussed earlier, the chunks of the empire that had emerged at the Treaty of Verdun had been further splintering, and the three Frankish courts had further split into two or even three parties within the court. Charles managed to gather all the political threads into his hand in an apparently idealistic attempt to recentralize power, but it seems likely that all he managed to do was assemble a court that contained all the parties and factions of the previous generations into one battle royale of inaction and intrigue. If the failure to rescue Paris from the Vikings is the favorite example of Charles' inaction in terms of security policy, his failure to arrest Guy the Rage when he was physically in court facing trial for a capital offense should be equally telling as to the impact of Charles' domestic policy. So with the empire in a state of flux politically, economically, and socially. What is it that we think happened when Arnulf kicked Charles to the curb and assumed power? Usually we look for conspiracies in the fall of an empire or the change of a regime, and the fact that the empire broke up would usually indicate to us some kind of failure, like Arnulf had wanted to hold the empire together after his well-planned coup and had failed. But all these ideas that we get from other imperial failures may be misleading here. Does the evidence support a conspiracy? Was there an attempt to hold the whole empire? To answer these questions, we need to look at the character of Arnulf of Carinthia. Arnulf would be portrayed in later generations as a man with a flowing beard and a winged helmet, a Germanic superman, but this is not necessarily borne out by the chronicles. Certainly he was a charismatic leader and a successful general who beat up dozens of tribes in all directions, from even before he was crowned king, and yet I think the most important thing about Arnulf is that he assumed the throne basically through acting as the spokesman for the nobility of Eastern Francia, not as an autocrat. At the Diet in Regensburg, where Charles the Fat was forced out, Ernulf led a delegation up to the emperor and informed him that he had lost support and was militarily vulnerable and to do the right thing. And then the two men negotiated terms, terms that Arnulf kept to even after Charles' death. In short, Arnulf was a responsible member of the Frankish nobility. We should also remember the nature of kingship in eastern Francia. 
For two generations, the leaders of the Eastern Franks had been nothing more or less than the patriarch of that branch of the Carolingian clan. People like Louis the German, who tried to assume absolute power, were sternly rebuked. But people like Carloman, who led as first amongst equals, were rewarded with loyalty. This is definitely a part of the ongoing feudal breakup of uh, the Frankish Empire, but it's also evidence of a clan that had sort of figured out how to work with the new situation. Arnulf was cut from this cloth, and he ruled as the head of the family, not as a divinely appointed despot. The flip side of this is that Arnulf had probably gained his popularity by being on hand and fighting for local interests. While Charles was off sauntering after some Vikings, Arnulf was fighting off the Slavs from multiple directions. For the first few years of his reign as king, he would continue this practice, with only scant attention being paid to other regions of the empire. In this context, the forced abdication of Charles and Arnulf's subsequent crowning seems to me to be the logical conclusion of all the ongoing court intrigue manifested in a coup by a faction that had not only a very regional base of support, but also very parochial regional concerns. Eastern Francia was the region least beset by faction fights and the most able to execute a plan, but that didn't make them a power base that Arnulf could have used to conquer the rest of the empire. It's also not something that necessarily Arnulf would want to do, given the declining geographic mobility that uh, was breaking up communications within the empire. In this context, it seems likely to me that Arnulf purposefully excluded the other regions and court factions from his plan, and then, when the court was physically on his home turf in eastern Francia, forced a coup on the other factions. The leaders of those factions then fled home and either began on their own initiative or in imitation of Arnulf to convene puppet diets to elect their favored candidate for rule in their region. This had the result of subdividing the empire permanently while also ensuring civil war in the other two regions as each faction fought for their favored candidate and the particularly strong families simply used the chaos to cut ties with their neighbors. What I don't think we have evidence for is an empire-wide conspiracy to oust Charles, as presumably such a conspiracy would have been better prepared, either by trying to just prop someone up as Super King Deluxe over the entire thing, or at least having candidates already chosen for the other regions. There's also some pretty obvious confusion and mutual recrimination in the Chronicles, the best example being that the Western Frankish Chronicle is very clear that Arnulf was illegitimate, and this is not something that was said by the Eastern Frankish Chronicle. There's also no evidence that Arnulf even wanted full imperial power. He may have just been focused on consolidating what he could, but at one point in the Chronicles he says that he does not want Western Francia as it's too exposed to Viking raids. This didn't stop him from gobbling up bits of the Lotharingian border areas, and then later in his reign he got a very interesting offer for the imperial crown of Italy from a certain pope, but that's for another time. For today, I think this is a good place to stop and take stock of the empire's moment of death. We've discussed at length now the structural issues of the empire and the rise of feudalism. If not the actual cause of the empire's end, this context was certainly a huge pile of kindling leaning on the walls of a match factory. It may have made it so that the people who made the plans to actually oust Charles the Fat didn't conceive of wanting the entire empire as part of what they took over. The political context of infighting and intrigue within the Carolingian clan presented further dangers. Let's say, spreading gasoline around the kindling pile. As to which particular employee was walking around with a lit cigarette, we can't be sure. 
our sources are of poor quality, a problem that is exacerbated by the speed of events and the faults of medieval timekeeping. But it does seem likely to me, given the political context, that Arnulf would not have risked his entire enterprise by involving the other court factions, and that the timeline and everything else we know seems to make it plausible that the other factions were acting in response to Arnulf's actions and the subsequent power vacuum with opportunism, rather than being involved in some sort of empire-spanning conspiracy that just kind of fell apart. That puts the ultimate question mark, then, on why Arnulf didn't attempt to seize the entire empire, and I think it's just that things had gotten to such a stage that he was more interested in parochial concerns and consolidating his local power, rather than attempting to bite off more than he could chew. So you may be wondering what all this has to do with Guy III down in Spolento. Well, we don't know exactly how it happened, but sometime in 887 or 888, Guy received an interesting letter from Archbishop Folk of Reims, a prince of the church, you understand, who said that Guy had won Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes, and if he would just send along his social security number and his bank account details, then Bishop Folk would be able to begin the process of making Guy III of Spolento the king of France. To find out Guy III's social security number and other exciting things, you'll have to tune in to the next exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.